This event is supported by Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Anheuser-Busch, the Texas Municipal League, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, Fibertown, Texas State Technical College, the Texas Association of School Business Officials, the Hackett Center for Mental Health at the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, and Southwest Airlines, the official airline of Texas Tribune Events. It is hosted by Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. Media support is provided by the Corpus Christi Caller Times. Foundation support is provided by the Hatton W. Sumner's Foundation and the Houston Endowment. Talk a little bit about the, the, the dynamics of how this coastal habitat can be restored as a buffer and, and what the steps that y'all are taking uh, are and, and maybe the cost. Well, there's some big picture thinking, and frankly, we, we were thinking about this after the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. The big ranch, Powderhorn Ranch, was purchased with fines that were paid to the federal government post-oil spill. Well, that great big 20,000-acre ranch, which is in pristine condition, is a wonderful example of shoreline protection, of a living shoreline. It's got oyster reefs, it's got plenty of land buffer, and it puts something in between a storm and people and things. And when you're talking about living shorelines, that's what you want. You want a good natural buffer that can absorb some of that storm surge or some of that flood water before it gets to people's homes. Um, you've also got in-water systems all, all over the Gulf of Mexico. You've got oyster reefs that are great wave attenuators that can help bear some of the brunt of that storm surge. You've got seagrasses. Uh, all of those natural systems can be first line of defense for storms. So the other thing that we're looking at though is even within these communities, we're doing some nice research with Texas A&M University, looking at Rockport, looking at the city of Houston and asking ourselves, if we had green spaces, unbuilt areas in certain parts of these communities, what would have happened? What would we have avoided in terms of storm damage? So these are not just ex-urban investments. These are rethinking how we create open spaces within these communities so that the next time we see these storms, there's more open space to absorb the, the results of the storm. We have the, the luxury of hindsight in a couple of instances, uh, the oyster reef restoration that uh, the Nature Conservancy has been involved with uh, is as close to home here as Matagorda Bay. How did that fare? Uh, have you had a chance to look at it and see how it? It actually fared pretty well because the issue with, uh, with the oyster reef in Matagorda Bay would have had more to do with an inundation of freshwater inflows, which would have changed the basic salinity. And that oyster reef did pretty well. And one of the reasons we're really pleased to see that and you'll remember this, Mr. Chairman, we built that oyster reef during a drought. And we were testing at the time whether or not we could get drought resiliency in the Gulf of Mexico, knowing that at some point if we were building things for drought resiliency, we'd get flood resiliency out of them as well. So that oyster reef was specifically built as habitat to promote uh, the production of oysters in the Gulf of Mexico. We've also are building an oyster reef in Galveston Bay, which is gonna be partly harvestable and that is to determine whether or not we can combine habitat reefs with harvestable reefs to rebuild the fishery. And then you can also build these things for coastal resilience. So that's an example of natural infrastructure that can perform on a whole variety of fronts. By the way, I fished Half Moon Reef after uh, it started growing and uh, it's very good fishing over there. Um, well, quick funny story about that. We, that is of course an oyster reef, but one of the things we noticed right after we built it was that all of, the, all of the recreational fishermen were going out there and fishing. So we attached an economic study to it and quickly realized that you could rebuild a reef of that size about every 18 months 
with just the money that is generated in recreational fisheries. And at some point, I believe you do hope to open it up to harvesting, right? Yes. Yeah. So they're not, they're not marine protected zones. They're actually recreational zones and commercial uh, fishing zones as, as well. Um, what, what is Nature Conservancy uh, looking at for the future uh, regarding hurricane prevention and habitat restoration? We're, what, what we are doing specifically, we, we're doing four things. First of all, we did some, uh, we did a poll. We shot a poll in the entire region that was affected. And there's just no question, the vast majority of people that live and work and reside in these communities are interested in rethinking how we rebuild. Um, people don't want to see this same thing happen over and over again. So people's attitudes are in the right places to make different kinds of investments. The second thing we're doing is modeling where you can leave open spaces in these communities to avoid some of the flooding that we saw in places like Houston, but also in Rockport, so that the next time a storm comes through, you've got more open spaces to absorb these storm surges. Um, the third thing that we're doing is working on with FEMA and how can we actually invest in open spaces such that it starts to positively impact flood insurance. In other words, these green spaces count for natural climate uh, solutions under FEMA and they could actually lower the insurance premiums that people are paying and we think affordability Great. can be an important part of this as well. Yeah. If there's anything else you'd like to add before I move on. Um, okay, I've worked with Jim Jabot over the years, uh, and he deals a lot with the first line of defense of the Texas coast called the Barrier Islands, and uh, he's done research uh, with several groups and is working with the, the General Land Office right now. Jim, tell us a little bit about what, what it is y'all are looking at regarding sea level rise and storm surge. Sure. Um, well, I work at the Hart Research Institute, and I have a lab there called the Coastal and Marine Geospatial Lab. And those of you who know about HRI, which is an institute, research institute here on campus, know that we're interdisciplinary. Um, and we uh, take projects from sometimes uh, relatively basic science all the way and make the uh, results available for policy making, or even analyze a policy that could stem from some of our results. And so my particular uh, interest most recently has been looking at coastal change, the, the biophysical changes in the coastal environment uh, around Texas, but other areas around the Gulf of Mexico as well. And when I talk about change, I'm talking about how things have changed over the last 100 years, for example, on that order of time scale. I am a geologist, but I work all in the modern, so. Um, and, and so, and the types of change we're looking at are how are the marshes uh, growing or, or disappearing, turning to other uh, environments such as open water or tidal flats, where the shorelines have been, where they've been moving, and uh, just the relative dynamics of the coastline over uh, decades, so the previous decades of time. And then we take that information and we match it up with uh, the, th the processes, the drivers of those change, such as sea level rise is a major, major driver, as well as major storms along the Texas coast. And then we, we take those processes and we match the observed changes and we create models to project how we think things will change in the future. How much the shoreline will erode or accrete in this area, or whether this is an area where 
a lot of the marsh will disappear, convert to open water, <clears throat> or perhaps marsh and other wetlands will migrate up into the uh, upland areas. So <clears throat> that's what we uh, spend a lot of time on modeling, but of, of course we can't just leave it at that or else we would, we would have limited impact on how, how, we, how we live along the coast. So one um, <coughs> pro product that we've come up with is what we call geohazards maps of barrier islands along the Texas coast. And in a, in a single map, for example, we have one of Mustang Island, we have it uh, with four colors. <coughs> Red are where our currently existing very critical environments are. On the uh, Gulf side, those are our beaches and our protective foredunes. On the bay side, those are marshes and tidal flats and tidal creeks and that sort of thing. So those are, those are places that everybody recognizes that we, we can't go in and I shouldn't say everyone recognizes this, but um, disrupt them. And they're serving a, currently a very important um, a service. They're performing very important services to us as, as in their natural environment, natural state. Uh, then the, the next color would be um, because uh, things don't, are, are, are not staying the same, we're experiencing sea level rise and we have ongoing storms, those very cr critical environments that we have today are going to migrate and change and they're going to move. And so yellow is the color on those uh, maps that show where, those, where we expect those environments to occur in 60 years' time. And then uh, we have a couple of other uh, colors that uh, show uh, uplands and uh, very high uplands, relatively speaking high uplands. Now, we don't um, necessarily propo propose or, or um, promote development of barrier islands to begin with. If we were to create a geohazards map of the entire United States with just four colors, all of our barrier islands would be painted bright red, okay? However, that's not the reality of the situation. We have lots of uh, economic uh, uh, things going on along the barrier islands, but we do need to recognize that there's smart ways to do it or smarter ways to do it than what we have been doing, areas that we should avoid, perhaps trade off other areas for development, um, for these more um, today's critical areas as well as what we project uh, will become critical areas as sea level rise and more storms strike the coast. So that's uh, one yeah. very important. I think people would be interested to know uh, also from your hindsight after you did the modeling and everything, and I'm sure you incorporated uh, you know, major events like hurricanes into that modeling, uh, uh, how, of course we have the benefit of two virtually uninhabited islands, you know, I mean, yeah. no, all, no due respect to Port Aransas, most of that island doesn't have that much, in, you know, uh, development on it, and, uh, but it's for sale. Uh, and uh, <laughs> obviously San Jose Island is uninhabited virtually except for that one house, <laughs> and uh, uh, Matagorda Island as well. Uh, after y'all saw what happened in Galveston, then we're gonna come south to my home, Padre Island, I mean, can we, can we project some, some, some things about the, the damages 
that would occur here if, if we had similar circumstances as Galveston had with Ike? Uh, with Ike, yes. Um, Ike in Because you studied that pretty carefully, yes. I believe. Yes. Um, we, we would um, fare much better along uh, Mustang Island, just qualitatively yeah. speaking, uh, with regard to beach erosion and overwash across Mustang Island in particular uh, than what Galveston Island uh, fared and, and much of Baltimore What's the major Peninsula. difference between those two besides it's our, the development? It's our dune system. I see. We have a, a, a relatively high and stable dune system. That means it's vegetated. Um, and that is a really our first line of defense. We did conduct one uh, study where we looked at uh, every 50 meters along Mustang Island about what level of protection, and we, we modeled what level of protection of a storm uh, causing overwash that the particular uh, fore dune or the, the dune system would provide uh, to the environments or the developments behind it. And and, and that, that's, that study shows that Mustang Island is, is much better off. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it, that's no, um, no surprise. You, you, most people can look there, but I, I think a lot of people may not appreciate just how important those barrier dunes are yeah. in, in mm -hmm. preventing the overwash. Um, and in fact, we, we went further in the, in the, um, in, in the, the mission of HRI to take it further, um, we actually valued the, the protective function of those barrier islands with my, my colleagues at HRI. Yeah. And uh, we, we can even uh, provide, uh, ter in terms of dollars for one particular protection, one particular service that those dunes provide along Mustang Island. And we need to, to start thinking a lot about that kind of uh, trade-offs that we're making. Uh, when we're developing in one place versus another, uh, what, what are we trading off in terms of not just a nice, natural, pretty environment that everyone enjoys, but also the resiliency that those natural environments provide us. And uh, we, we need to start thinking more along those Well, and how does some of that translate to policy? I know on, uh, I believe, Mustang Island or Nueces County, we were fairly forward thinking where we did a 300-foot setback, I believe, on development. It, it, it annoyed a lot of people who owned the property because they, they felt like they couldn't you know, use their own property. But uh, when, in hindsight, would, was that probably the smartest thing to do? Uh, well, um, perhaps. But there, there are lots of other uh, things that go into a decision like that. Yeah, yeah. But what we need to do is, is as scientists and what we strive to do at HRI is to provide that information at least in a form where people can make better decisions yeah. or even the decision makers um, have the information that they need and they know the trade-offs that we're making. And that's why you're working with the GLO, I believe, to try to direct some of the policy. Right. We're working uh, with the GLO, and we have been for a number of years now, on the Texas Coastal Resiliency Master Plan, is what it's called. And this is... Uh, uh, led by the GLO, and we're a primary partner along with a couple of other groups um, working on this plan, and not to mention the uh, about 100 uh, members of what we call our technical advisory committee to help advise us on what strategies to improve resiliency 
that we should use. And we get very specific down to particular projects that should be implemented. Yeah. Let's move on. Uh, I, I don't know the medicine doesn't always taste very good uh, when you advise uh, the policymakers. But um, I'd like to maybe move in a little <laughs> bit. A lot of people here have relatives or, or just watch what occurred in Houston and, and maybe wondered, um, how would we fare here um, from a Texas water development uh, perspective and, and what you've looked at from rivers and things like that, dams, um, how would we fare on a 50, with a 50-inch rain somewhat inland? Uh, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of uninhabited area and we're not as dense, but you know, what would it look like here? Uh, I imagine it probably wouldn't look very good. Yeah. Um, fortunately, at, at the Texas Water Development Board, we have uh, a group, the, the acronym is, uh, is TINRIS. Uh, most people, a lot of folks don't, well, frankly, don't know a, a whole lot about the Water Development Board, um, but especially probably wouldn't know this group, TINRIS, that's our state's lead GIS group, meaning um, they do all the mapping. About and, flood, and, flood, uh, flood, fl like flood inundation mapping. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, floodplain mapping, um, they, the, the, it's, it's highly sophisticated, it's very well done. Uh, it was, uh, the, we had uh, hydrologists from Tenris that were working uh, uh, around the clock in the state's emergency operations center over the course of Hurricane Harvey, uh, providing emergency management officials with maps uh, to help them uh, with potential evacuation decisions as the event was unfolding. Um, and fortunately, the legislature last session saw it fit to direct uh, some additional money to the agency for various flood mitigation strategies, including uh, that will support Tenderis and, and their efforts to improve mapping so that we can be, be ready for the next event. So um, I, it was, I mean, it's pretty sophisticated what these folks can do on, on you know, big giant Google Maps and be able to, to throw in all the, all the theoreticals of this much rain in this area over this period of time and show you um, pretty darn close to, to accurate. And, and we've, we've, we've been able to test this now because of, of past events, like the big Sabine flood, the records flood on the Sabine a couple years ago. And, uh, and you know, it, it, a lot of these flood events, you do have time to respond um, and, and, and evacuate and, and move people out of harm's way in, in many cases. And that's been a success, I think, of the agency. Well, when it hit Houston, though, I mean, were, was it just beyond you know, anything you could have planned for or anything you could have prepared for? I, I think that's probably fair to say yes. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, you gotta be understand the, sh the sheer amount of rain, I think the, the records were just shattered. Right. I mean, across right. the board. Um, so you hear reference to, you know, once in a hundred year, once in a 500 year, this was just completely off the charts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we just, uh, we don't design infrastructure uh, for those types of events. That's just, that's not standard. Um, and I think most, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of, I know there's engineers in the crowd would say you would never design certain infrastructure for some off the chart event like that. Yeah, it's just, yeah. um, but at the same time, we knew that, mis we know now that mistakes were made along the way regarding development and, and water, uh, sure. floodplains and things like that. And what's, you know, what's, uh, what's very scary about the Harvey event um, was and it, you know what would have happened if the storm had been a little further south and been a direct hit on the port of Corpus Christi in our ship channel? Um, what if it had shifted uh, to the north and you have that the uh, I mean the sort of nightmare scenario that's that's been talked about for a long time in the up in Houston 
with, uh, with a Katrina storm or a Harvey storm yeah. that is a direct hit on the Houston Ship Channel and what that would do to cripple uh, our, the, the, you know, our nation's uh, petrochemical industry. And that's why we're, you know, we, we, we're still talking about this and what yeah. to do and what's next and how to, um, how to be better prepared. Uh, there's just a lot, there's lots of challenges in that regard, but it's, uh, it's good to have folks in a room like this, the policymakers, the thinkers, the legislators, uh, to, so that we can not just respond to events. I mean, I, the, the history of the agency that I, I worked for was that it was created in response to the worst drought ever. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 it's, and we've been very successful in things we've accomplished in the last 60 years at this agency. Um, the, you know, certain programs, the SWIFT program was created in response to the drought in 2011. And we've been successful and things have been accomplished. But, um, you know, good policy, uh, it, it can come from the reaction to a disaster. Uh, and we have examples of that. But I think most everyone in this room would, would agree, uh, collectively, we've got to figure out ways to address it in advance. Because um, if we get that storm that hits this here in Corpus head on or in Houston, heaven forbid, uh, if we're not better prepared for it, uh, it's going to be a real struggle. Well, put your put your candidate hat on. I'm sure you've thought about policy uh, uh, changes and, and, and who's going to pay and how much it's going to cost and things like that. You, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, I'd like you to uh, address sure. it now. My candidate hat. Yeah, I'm about ready to take that candidate <laughs> hat off. Uh, I, I see. It's good to see some friends. I know traveled in from out of town. I'll just I'll, I'll warn you. Do not listen to the radio. Do not listen to talk radio right now. Um, so yeah, I've, um, I've been accused uh, of, of in the past of being maybe too much of a realist. I don't, maybe it's just um, from the experience of presiding over an agency that, that rightfully so has to go to the legislature and fight for a budget every, every couple years. Uh, I feel like our agency was again very successful in doing a tremendous amount with very little when it came to, uh, to our footprint and our state's budget. Uh, fortunately, that was because voters a number of years ago, again, voters statewide authorized $2 billion to be transferred from the state's rainy day fund into a new financing program that the board administers, which has been very, very successful. And um, the, the, the irony, the, there's obviously lots of ironies when you are a candidate and you're involved in the campaign process, but the, 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 my opponent and people that support my opponent say that uh, as chairman of the water board, I was... Uh, this big spender of taxpayer dollars and, and present it that way. Uh, when the, the reality of the SWIFT program, that many of you know, was again a voter authorized program that's funded billions of dollars of water infrastructure at no cost to state taxpayers. No, no state direct appropriation was made to fund that $2.7 billion worth of water infrastructure that was accomplished the last three years through that one program. Um, so I the, the last several years, being in the Capitol, working with legislators that I know uh, care very much about water policy and infrastructure specifically, um, there's, there, there's always been a bit of a disconnect and a challenge when I go in and get called into meetings to say, well, okay, of course we want to build these reservoirs. Of course we want to have uh, you know, these flood mitigation strategies and projects. Um, yeah, the Ike Dike. Sounds like uh, a, you know, a good idea, it's been studied. There's been a lot of money invested in studying that as a strategy, but who's gonna, who pays for it? At the end of the day, how does it get paid for? And um, I just, you know, having been chairman of, again, of the board and going and fighting you know, for, for a budget, 
and uh, there's just not a lot of money to go around. And so being able to communicate and effectively prioritize the need for certain projects is key. Uh, but moving forward, I mean, if you're, you're talking about a 12 billion, I mean, I've seen different estimates, of course, on the Ike Dyke strategy, but $12 billion, uh, there's not a local community that by itself has the financial capacity to, to take on a project like that. Um, it's, you know, it's unrealistic to think that, um, that you can just go to, to the federal government and have them cut a check for it. Uh, and you know, the state has been uh, struggled to, to come, come to terms with wanting to spend a lot of direct money on these types of projects, just, at least in, in my experience from where I, when I was at the board. Um, it's, we should try to do as much as we could do with the least amount, and I think the board has accomplished that. But um, we got to, you know, we sort of got to get real and get serious moving forward if, if we're going to build a $12 billion Ike Dyke and understand uh, who's going to pay. Is it going to be the federal government? Does, it, does the state need to step up, go back to the rainy day fund, put a question to voters? Um, but um, we can talk all day and, and study and plan and talk about strategies. But we uh, we need to get we need to be be more upfront and uh, and honest I think with voters and taxpayers about what the solutions are and what they're going to cost. Okay. And I'd like to make a comment about the policy that follows disasters because I think I think you make a really important point, Beck. When the state water f plan was funded, it, which by the way took a vote of the legislature and then it went on a ballot, so Texans approved that investment. So in addition to not in addition to being part of the rainy day fund and not being directly tax dollars, it was you know, thought of, conceptualized, approved by the Texas legislature, and then agreed to by the people of Texas. What I thought was so significant about that was because that came during a drought condition in the state, one that was you know, unbelievably unforeseen, just like Harvey was, one of the really good policy decisions that was made was that a minimum of 20% of that funding for water infrastructure had to be used for conservation. And there was widespread agreement that the cheapest water supply we'd ever get in this state is through conservation, is just using less water so that we stretch our existing water supplies further and longer. There was an additional 10% that was dedicated towards agricultural investments and rural investments. And I think that that's significant because we turned to a strategy that we might not have otherwise turned to because we were passing policy during a period of time where we were seeing what extreme weather events produce in our state. We're a water-constrained state most of the time. Uh, I think that we saw some great thinking after the oil spill, the BP oil spill, where through good work at the federal level and then also at the state level, we drove a lot of those fines and fees into, into restoring the natural systems that were damaged by that oil spill and building resiliency into our coastal systems. And by the way, those are systems that get uh, far too little investment over time. And so I think what we're, what we're seeing now is yet another opportunity to embed in policymaking a response to potential future events. And it's not gonna be the same as what we did with the water infrastructure planning, and it's not gonna be the same as what we did with post-oil spill. It's different thinking. It's thinking strategically about that natural infrastructure that can provide real live relief for a future storm. And so I think that we're, we're sort of sitting in front of a policy opportunity right now. Yeah to see what happens at the state and at the local levels in terms of acknowledging this is not just about recovering from a storm, it's about building resiliency for the future. Laura, I want to stay with you a little bit. After the storm, 
and, and the Nature Conservancy had uh, some time to take a deep breath. Do y'all sit around and powwow about what was done right and what projects maybe should shift uh, based on what you've learned from the storm? Oh yeah, I mean, there's every, everybody is evaluating. I think you were talking yeah. about evaluating. He gets the same question in a minute. Yeah, too. well, <laughs> of course you do. You evaluate how the natural systems performed against the storm that came, and you also think about how uh, systems would have performed if they were in different places. If you had open spaces and and new in different places, how would it have performed? So there's no question that people looked at Ike Dyke. If Ike Dyke had been built, how yeah. would that have performed in favor or against the conditions that we experienced in Harvey? There's no question that you want to do that, but I do think you want to be careful about developing a game plan based on the storm that just came, because the yeah. next storm isn't going to look the same, yeah. and, you, and you can't build resilience based on a Harvey scenario. You've got to be far more dynamic in how you're thinking about future floods and storm surges. So you do want to learn from the past, um, and, and there's all sorts of modeling that's been done but you want to be careful to have a, a broader perspective on what you're going to face in the future. Sure, you don't want to react just to that. Um, were there any uh, projects uh, or shifts in, 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 in y'all's focus that uh, arose from those, those talks afterwards and the observations made? Well, I think, the, I think the conversation that I thought was probably the most interesting and it's probably the most controversial is whether or not the floodplain maps were accurately drawn <laughs> and whether or not you know, people and things were in places that they shouldn't have been. Yeah. And I know those are hard conversations mm -hmm. to have, but those are the conversations we've got to be willing to at least open up. Yeah. And even if there's a healthy debate, uh, that for me was a really important conversation and, it, and we're not done with it. We've yeah. got to have accurate floodplain maps so that as our state doubles in size, and by the way, our state is doubling in size, so we're going to be building a lot more homes and buildings and businesses we've got to put them in the right places. And that means that we have to know where floods are going to happen. What is the smart growth for the coast? I know a lot of that growth is coming to the coast regardless of the danger. Um, is there some smart growth uh, uh, pointers that we can take away from this and, and, and work toward in the future? Well, one of them is don't build things in floodways. That'd I shouldn't have built my house on Padre <laughs> Alley, you telling me? Okay. Uh, but but you, I think a, a lot of the population, the, the fact is a lot of the population that we're going to see in Texas is going to be moving into one of our big cities. All of our big cities in Texas are doubling in size. Yeah. And so really what you're having to think about there is how are you going to plan transportation systems and density such that Houston can double in size, you know, Austin can double in size, San Antonio can double in size, and all of our Texas cities are struggling with that. How can you do that so that you protect quality of life? How can you do that so that you've got good air quality, so that people aren't sitting in traffic all day long? And when we see floods and droughts, people aren't unduly harmed. And so I think all of our, all of our big cities are struggling with that. I think density has a really important role in that. Yeah, I'm sure. Jim, uh, how, how did the scientific community uh, after, in the aftermath of Harvey, kind of look at the areas they were they were uh, researching and maybe shift some of their focuses, or or did they more or less say we're doing the we're in the right path? Um, well, what happens after a, a storm in the university community is is that everyone looks and tries to find the equipment they had out in the field for one, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, maybe uh, adjust some dissertations or master CC's researches research that was in midstream and now has been totally upset um, so yeah sure yeah, yeah from a practical point of view there's those kinds of things there's also uh, funding that's made available um, 
from NSF, actually, National Science Foundation, and, and other um, funding organizations also, to get researchers uh, funds immediately to get out into the field to capture the event. Be, because um, if, you don't, if you don't get out there and measure the impacts right away, then, then you've lost those data, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so uh, NSF recognizes that, and this university has, is involved in some of those um, rapid response uh, to Hurricane Harvey or because of Hurricane Harvey types of projects. Um, water inflow into the coastal bays is a big subject of, of study right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. Most of the modeling uh, uh, held true? Or? Well, that is, is um, I, I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, I'll take it as a no. Yeah, well, <laughs> most, I, 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 uh, no, I don't have a, a, a really good assessment of that right yeah. now to give you give you an idea. I will, I will emphasize, though, is that modeling, you do modeling for different reasons, for a variety, several different reasons. One is maybe to predict the future. But another reason that you model the natural environment and the processes going on is so that you understand what is relatively important, which, which parts of the, the model are more, or processes are, are the most important. And uh, it, it just gives you a better idea, a better understanding of the system. And you may be able to hindcast, you know, for, forecast back into the future um, and be pretty successful. But you know, the, the, the next storm, they're never the same. They're never exactly yeah. the same. And, and that, that's a good point, I thought, that, that Laura brought up, that you can't just um, respond and react to Hurricane Harvey and yeah. you know, fix everything that went wrong with Harvey and think you're done um, be, because the next storm will, it will not be the same. I mean, Ike was very different very from different. Harvey. The two parts of Harvey were very different yes. from each other. Yeah. It was a, it's yeah. a tale of two storms, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so to address those kinds of things, we, we do uh, do suites of, of storms and um, other uh, scenarios to try to uh, cover the full range of, of dynamics that we could expect to see in the future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Becca, would you have some, some perspective from your congressional uh, districts area, where there are there areas that, that need more work than others, and what, what maybe are the problem areas and the focus areas that you should look at? Sure. Well, in the, within the con congressional district, uh, an area that it is not, wasn't just limited or specific to Harvey, but uh, Wharton County, for example, has seen uh, multiple catastrophic floods in the last few years. And, and that, the issue is not unique to Wharton County, um, you know, but the, on the Sabine River, they've had, uh, I, was, I remember the week or so after the storm, as Governor Abbott had formed the, the commission to rebuild and pulled all the different agency folks together and we were visiting different areas, we're in uh, Beaumont sitting around a table with all the county judges and, and mayors and um, they have, I believe the county judge there said they, in the last two or three years, they've had five different uh, presidential disaster declarations for flooding. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm afraid we've seen in certain areas, it's, this is not necessarily limited to this one storm. It's, it's a bigger issue that, that has played out the last several years from, from when it comes to, to, to flooding. And 
um, it's going to have to be uh, the combination of a lot of different things if it's going to be addressed appropriately from a conservation perspective. The low-hanging fruit that we talk about, the Laura talks about, that, the, um, that we should certainly look to, but also from, the, I'm afraid, the reality if we're going to if we're going to uh, to take it on, it's going to have to spend some money, mm -hmm. to, uh, and we got to be smart about how we do that. But um, yeah, Warden, uh, in particular within the congressional district, uh, from a, from a flooding standpoint, has been dealing with that over and over and over again. They've got a uh, a project there that's been authorized, a flood mitigation project locally in Warden that's been authorized by the U.S. Army, US Army Corps of Engineers for a number of years, and it just um, has, not, has not been able to, to get any funding. We're approaching the, uh, the Q&A portion of the session, and I'm sure there are some questions out there. I know some folks are out there from Houston and, and all around the coastal bend. Uh, so be thinking about your questions that I'd like to, uh, in the meantime, pose to you guys. What have people approach y'all uh, as far as their concerns. I mean, you talk to people very differently than who, who Beckwith might talk to. Uh, the conservation community, what are their major concerns regarding storm prevention and offsetting of the damage? Well, I think, I think in general there is recognition, and I don't know that we talk to people very differently. I think that there are really? a lot of viewpoints are frankly coming together. I think that people do understand that we're gonna have to invest in a combination of natural infrastructure and built infrastructure in order to make sure that this state is resilient for these kinds of things. I think that there is, I, I, in fact, our polling tells us there is a universal understanding that we're living in a state that is going to experience a lot more storms and a lot more droughts. And, and interestingly, they kind of bookend each other. And so I think instead of figuring out what the differences in opinions are, you know, my job is to figure out how do we come together on solutions. And so, when I think about resilience and I think about conservation's role in resilience, I think about disruption. We need to build a, you know, we need to build a coast that can withstand disruptions of storms, of flooding, but also surge. And the solution that you'd put in place to solve a flooding problem, you don't want that to create some perverse reaction when you see a, sur a storm surge from a different kind of event or a drought. So. What I'm seeing is that there is a growing understanding that the natural environment can and does help solve problems. Uh, not only is it beautiful, not only is it productive, not only are these places we want to see, like Powderhorn Ranch, but they are active parts of infrastructure that can help make this state resilient. And I specifically mean resilient to disruption, because I think we need to agree that these are not isolated events. Right. And if we can reach agreement that they're not isolated events and they're not going to happen in the exact same places every single time, then what we'll agree on quickly is that we have to have a whole suite of interventions, including natural infrastructure and traditional gray infrastructure, that make this state more resilient. And I just can't emphasize enough, the stakes are high. Uh, our state's population is doubling, and it's doubling in the very places that are seeing the biggest impacts from these events. And so it is, it, you know, it's our obligation to figure out where to invest in order to solve these problems. Yeah. Jim, the, the, the scientific community may express its interest uh, in the way that it funds uh, projects and research. Have you seen a shift or, or an upsurge in uh, research grants uh, or the focus of those grants lately? Uh, yeah, yes, there's actually a lot of research uh, funding available in the Gulf of Mexico right now, um, largely stemming from the Deepwater Horizon mm -hmm. um, BP spill, and um, all the uh, billions of dollars uh, 
much of it uh, goes toward research, and a lot of it goes toward restoration and conservation um, and acquisition of, of new, new land for, good, good. for preservation. And so, um, and, and in order to determine, you know, which are the, the most viable uh, acquisitions to make or restorations to do, um, that takes a lot of science in, in order to do it, do it right. I mean, yeah. it, it, uh, it also takes monitoring in, in order to learn from what you've done and to um, adapt it as you go along. And so there is a lot of, uh, to answer your question, uh, it's really good to be in this business right now. In golf <laughs> yeah, actually, and it seems to be driven somewhat by what we just experienced. I mean, some of the uh, grant funding, or, or well, the uh, you mean with the hurricane impacts yeah, yeah. that as well, yeah. that as well, absolutely. Um, and these restoration projects th that we're talking about uh, coming from the settlements of the Deepwater Horizons bill uh, are taking. Well, we're working hard on making sure that they are designed with the future involved, and that. Um, expectations are met with for how long, say, a particular marsh environment would last, mm -hmm. what you should couple it with, perhaps uh, oyster reefs to help protect the marsh, and then perhaps for the town uh, upland of that, a, uh, another a line of defense that would be some, some kind of a engineering structure, a, a bulkhead mm -hmm. or something like that. And so we're trying to put together those systems of restoration and protection and and improving the quality of the ecosystem all in these same uh, strategies. Mm -hmm. so. so, Beck, what are you hearing uh, from potential constituents <laughs> along the trail? Uh, what are their major concerns in, in the aftermath of Harvey? I, I'm sure it's still fresh on many other minds. You bet, and uh, you know, for me personally, Harvey was a big part of the reason why I decided to leave the Water Development Board and enter this race. Uh, because of not just that our family was personally affected, but um, the area that I grew up in and care very much about is um, I, I, I have, I'm concerned and in view um, that this is going to be a long-term recovery and, and that it's going to need to involve the involvement of the federal government uh, in various ways. And um, I, I think folks recognize uh, and are still going through the different levels, um, sort of stages of grief, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, but, but I look up, um, I, currently I live in Rockport and so I see it every day and, uh, I just, I don't think th in this immediate area here that, um, that the, the storm hitting the, the response, the, the local leadership, I mean, truly leadership at the local level that came together, uh, to, uh, to begin the recovery process, not just the response, but now the recovery, um, has been really amazing and, and it's, uh, um, they, they, they still need the help of both the federal and state government, yeah. but uh, there's a resiliency here locally that folks aren't going to sit around and wait for it. Um, you know, if I'm successful in what I'm doing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be pushing every button I can and pushing every agency I can. That, that should be the role of whoever represents the area at every level, and I know it's happening certainly at, uh, with, our, with state legislators that you heard from earlier. Um, but uh, I think... Uh, Folks have faith that uh, that we're going to rebuild and it's going to be better than it ever was before. 
Laura, I'd like to hear your, your optimism level. Uh, we, we've just <laughs> experienced some major catastrophes, and, and I, I, I know that that brings people together, uh, and it also um, uh, certainly furthers policy changes and things. Are you seeing the, the, the policy, and the, uh, are you optimistic about where they're headed and, and, and the work that we're doing together? I'm hopeful. I, I would say I'm hopeful. I think the federal aid package was a little bit better than we were concerned about that for a period of time, that it was not going to be as big as it needed to be, and it's not, but it's not. It's yeah. bigger than we thought it was going to be. We, we wanted that aid package to be really dynamic so it could address the range of issues that we've discussed up here and the previous panel discussed. But a lot of the, the decision-making will happen at the state and local level. I mean, those are ground-level decisions. And so I, I'm always optimistic at the local level because, because my background is local government. I think that that is the people see those problems closest to the ground. They, they know their neighbors. They know exactly which streets flooded. So I, I am optimistic because I just think that we've seen too much in this state in the last decade to be naive about what the future holds in terms of more of these kinds of events. And I think we've got too much technology, too much knowledge, too much um, research and modeling to make the same mistakes. Yeah. And I'm hopeful well, because events like this are happening, right? We're having better conversations yeah, than we used yeah. to have. The, and I'll add, I'll add to that, another, I think hopefully another reason to be optimistic, looking ahead to the next legislative session, I can tell you, um, I believe we're, as a state, we're, um, when you look at, at money that will be available in the next session, we're coming in in a much better scenario situation from, you know, price of oil, barrel of oil example, how, how, our, how we fund our state government than we were in the last interim coming into session, where all the agencies were said, we're told, you know, bring a, bring a, come with a budget request with an with a off-the-top 4% cut yeah. and then cut more. And, uh, the state's going to have to, to they, they, we've already expended some money at the state level, certainly at a high level, in response to Harvey, and some of that's going to need to be paid back, so to speak. But um, I believe that if you ask Comptroller Hager, looking ahead to whatever his, you know, his, his budget revenue estimate's going to be, just in, in general, um, it's, it should be a, be a rosier picture from, an, from a state economy standpoint uh, than it was a couple years ago. Yeah. Uh, everybody on the panel deals with uh, uh, all political sides, and, and I know at one point, if you were a conservationist, you were labeled a certain political slant, and if you were a developer, you were, you know, or pro-business, you were on the other side. And uh, in my 20-something years in writing about conservation and wildlife and, and, and recreational uh, issues in, in, in wildlife, I've noticed there has been somewhat of a coming together. Have y'all seen that too? I think that science has played a, a large role where we're starting to pay more attention to it and be less skeptical despite the national conversation. Yeah, I, I think um, that has come along and it's largely, well, partly because of um, how we not just, you know, come up with our applied um, results and leave it at that, but uh, we're able to translate it and people see how that impacts the economy. Um, beach erosion or, or overwash or you uh, tear down a dune to build a condominium, well isn't there a better way to do it? And you, you can show the economic impact. And just about in everything that, that we do, um, it, there is um, uh, information there that people making plans along the coast for more development 
uh, can improve what they're doing and lessen impact to the environment, thereby lessening the impact of their development. Yeah. Have you seen an opening up of uh, the arms there? I have, uh, for two reasons. Sort of on the, what I think of as the inspirational side of conservation, I think that Texans are really united in their love of their landscapes. I mean, if you talk to anybody, they've got a favorite place, whether it's, you know, the Piney Woods in East Texas or uh, the Davis Mountains in the West Texas. Texans are, uh, we're sentimental and we love those beautiful places in our state and we've got a lot of them. And so I think we do share that in common. On the other, on the other side of it, I know, I, I know for sure that Texans understand that our successful economy is intricately intertwined with our natural resources. Exactly, mm -hmm. I try to make and that so point to often. And so to damage the natural resources is by definition to damage the economy. Right. And I right. think that is an increasingly well understood yeah. fact. Yeah. I think we recognize that here especially. Yeah, I believe so. I've certainly uh, flown that flag for a long time. Um, <laughs> I'd like to open up the, the floor to questions if we have, or at least get an indication um, of, of any questions you guys might have for the panel, or any points you'd like to bring up to have them address. Um, Speak now. If you want to talk about border security or immigration <laughs> reform or, you know, I'm down for that too. <laughs> There's a lot of movers and shakers <laughs> in this room I recognize and some people who earthly suffered some personal losses and uh, mm. they probably have some concerns about where the policy is moving. Uh, um, I'd, I'd fr frankly like to hear what your questions and concerns are. Um, so come on up. If not, we're going to blather on. All right, blather on. <laughs> well, I think you're, you, going back to the question about are you seeing the coming together of yeah, different yeah. political uh, ideology, um, I'm, like you, I'm sure I'm a proud member of CCA. Yes, and, I, um, I, I, I belong to all, all of them, them by yeah, default. SCA, so and much, uh, <laughs> I mean, you probably recognize if you were at the last CCA banquet walking through there, me as a political candidate, I had a few voters in that room. I, I'm pretty sure some of them are, it's a given. You know, it's, uh, but you know, I mean, people who hunt and fish obviously uh, uh, have often been pegged on, on one side of the political spectrum, you know, and yet we're the greatest conservationists yep. in the country and we certainly pay for that conservation. And uh, I believe that finally we're starting to soften up and uh, uh, we may not use the E word, but we embrace the C word. <laughs> Y'all can, can run with that. Yeah, 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 well, we are the Nature Conservancy, so. Yeah. Well, the Nature Conservancy, I've always felt like, and I know I've, I've promoted y'all for years, um, and the first thing that I heard about the Nature Conservancy was not from the Nature Conservancy, it's from someone who said, Oh, that's that group that buys land and puts it under glass so nobody can touch it. And, and I, I, I had to do a little research, <laughs> but uh, that's just simply not the case. Uh, although sometimes there is parcels of land, uh, and I think lately y'all have been bequeathing them to like, well, Powder Horn, which is a great project that I wrote about a few months ago. Um, y'all are not in the park business though, and you don't have the cash. To, to staff these places. So uh, although Powder Horn is a wonderful coastal buffer, uh, it's uh, Parks and Wildlife is better, better equipped to handle that. I'll make a 
make a comment about that because getting to scale in conservation is really expensive to do. This is a problem that people face all over the world. Land is expensive, protecting water is expensive. Really good conservation work never happens by one organization working in isolation. That's actually a red flag, including what if a state is doing it by itself. The really good conservation work in Texas almost always has a public component, a nonprofit component, and importantly, a private landowner component. Over 95% of Texas is privately owned. We will not get this done without private landowners. And in the United States, we have what I think of as the most elegant conservation tool in the world, which is the conservation easement, which allows a private landowner to essentially sell development rights to an organization like the Nature Conservancy or the state of Texas in order to protect their land in perpetuity. And, and in a state like Texas, that's essential because so much of our land is privately owned, but it also allows private landowners to make their own personal decision about how their property is used uh, in the future. And it turns out that it's a, it is a wildly successful paradigm where we all work together in important places, and the Texas coast is one of them. And you've yeah. just got a lot of uh, dynamic investment by a whole variety of actors going towards a conservation objective. And it, it can be a thing of beauty. I think it's one of the best solutions to off the, offset the, um, the, the fragmentation of, of wild places, which is generally done when grandpa dies and uh, five or six people uh, want their piece of the land, but they never really spent time hunting and fishing on it, so uh, they just want the cash for it. And grandpas, as I've heard it from several grandpas, they said, I'm gonna stick it to them kids. They can't develop it, they can't divide it, and, and, and it's there for perpetuity. It's a, it's a great program. Well, I, I, I can say, add that um, in working on the Texas Coastal Resiliency Master Plan uh, with the GLO again, mm -hmm that those acquisition projects or those conservation easement acquisitions are the most highly rated projects. And there's, there's a good reason for that because they're usually fairly large. Um, it's it's um, also provides or buys this buffer for us mm -hmm. or this uh, protects us, protects the future with sea level rise and how things are changing. There may be a piece of land that isn't particularly uh, valuable uh, with regard to wetlands and, and uh, shallow uh, bay environments, but it will be in, in the future. Mm -hmm. And so those projects are very uh, important and rank very highly among mm -hmm. the Technical Advisory Committee for that. On the flip like side that. of that, do you, do you see much pushback from landowners who resent uh, their property being used as a Hurricane buffer or, or anything like like no, Mustang Island. I, I, I we don't really get down to yeah. that level in working with the landowners. There are people in the room who know whether or not this is feasible if we have a willing owner or mm -hmm. not for us right. to even continue to consider it. But um, I haven't heard that particular. Well, and, and I I remember when the when the 300 foot setback rule in Oasis County came about. There was a lot of, a lot of uh, disagreement. You know, but I, I think I think they've kind of warmed up to the idea, especially sure. after seeing the hurricane damage that that could mm -hmm. come. And you said that that's probably one of the best policies that that sustained those dunes over there. And uh, I mean, they can build a boardwalk over them; they just can't develop, right. you know, tear them down and build a house on, next to them on, on them. Good question. All right, cool.
So we know that the bay in Harvey got scrubbed a lot of seagrass because I had seagrass this high around the house, 10 foot wide. We know that it covered Mustang Island considerably. Does that mean that there is no more seagrass? Have you had any um, investigation of the status of seagrass in the bay and then kicking it over to Nature Conservancy? And would there have been more benefit had there been additional oyster um, fields and things to make a difference in that whole situation? Because unlike what people were expecting, the flooding came into the bay and then came at the island from inside. Uh -huh. Are you talking about Aransas Bay or Corpus Bay or what? Corpus Bay. Corpus Bay. Well, this Corpus is Mustang Bay. Island. Looking at Mustang Island, yeah. I know yeah. you live on Padres right. and you didn't get to see all of that. Well, but I fished Shamrock a lot. In fact, I was just there a couple of weeks ago. Right. And there's still vast areas of seagrass out there. I think Marine Science Institute is doing some, some studies. They, they so, charted all that. I'm so what has like, is, is the institute found? with the seagrass situation. So that's a big question. Yeah, we haven't um, specifically gone out there ourselves, but I would refer you to uh, uh, UT Marine Science Institute. Um, researchers there, uh, Ken Dutton uh, comes to mind, that um, may have a, a handle on yeah. just. They have the, the, the baseline information yes. on, on, on seagrass in that area, I believe, and I don't know if they've had a chance to return to see how it went. Yeah. That's going to have to be our final note for the morning. Uh, thank you all.